Galatians chapter 6, and let's begin reading at verse number 11. Paul says, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, as we read these closing verses, I'm struck by a similarity that's found in the first few verses of the entire book of Galatians. We studied last week on grace as it affects our relationship with one another. Chapter number 5 deals with grace as it affects our relationship with God. And I think it bears repeating tonight that grace is not only the means of salvation, but it's the means of sanctification. It's not only the means of justification. It not only uh, sets us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, but it also enables us to walk in a way that's pleasing unto Him and unto His glory and unto His honor. The only way you'll be what God intends for you to be is by submission to the Holy Spirit and uh, by walking in the Spirit and thereby not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. And then last week we saw how that, that same grace that works in our relationship with God should also be our standard rule, our, uh, our standard operating procedure, as we mentioned last week, in the way that we deal with one another. God gives us the perfect example of grace in the way that He dealt with us and the example of how we ought to deal with one another. And we touched on this, and the reason I repeat it is because I want you to remember it, that grace does not deal... Uh, with the extent of its right, but rather in what is effectual to reconcile. Uh, what I mean by that is that God had every right to send us to hell. That was right. That was just. He could have done that. He would have still been God. And all the qualities of God would have still been so and would have still been pure. We kind of think, well, He's only uh, God is only love because He showed love towards us. No, God showed love towards us because He's love. Even if He hadn't showed love towards us, God would have still been love. He would have still been holiness. He would have still been pure. He did not have to do any of those things to become God. He was God before the cross, and thank the Lord that He's still God after the cross. Uh, he didn't have to do any of those things to validate uh, his deity. Uh, he's God. No man stands in the place to be able to try to hold him to task or uh, measure him by any standard. He is the judge of all the earth, and the judge of all the earth will do right, uh, whether we agree with it or not. But that's not how God dealt with us. Now, God could have dealt with us in that way. Uh, but instead, he chose to do what was effectual to reconcile lost man to himself. At great cost, he sent his son to die for our sins. Why? Because that would redeem us. Not to make himself God, he was already God. But because he loved us and he wanted to redeem us, 
unto himself. In the same way, there's going to be times that as you deal with folks, you're going to have the right to nail them to the wall. You know what I mean. You're going to have the right to, to absolutely turn them upside down and right side up and uh, tell them every which way. And you'd be right in doing so. You wouldn't be saying anything wrong by doing it. Uh, but if you want to restore those folks, that's not always the effectual means of doing it. Now, there's times all of us need to be rebuked. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss the place of, uh, of rebuking between brethren that's done out of love, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, nor am I trying to dismiss, nor is Paul trying to dismiss, the practice of church discipline. That's an important thing. God expects us to do it. But when a man realizes he's been overtaken in a fault, then you with your spiritual restore that man in the spirit of meekness. So uh, God's been dealing with all of these principles in our lives. But it's as though that the, the very same attitude with which Paul penned the, the first few verses, in fact, I'll tell you what, let's read those first few verses. Uh, probably no better way to close it out than to uh, go back to the beginning and see how this runs full circle. How does Paul begin the book of Galatians? He says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ under another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As was said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now, you can take your own time to read the rest of chapter number 1. There's a few things Paul talks about in chapter number 1 that pop up in these last few verses. Uh, first, I want you to know that Paul is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God in his own life. He began talking in that way at the first chapter. Now, of course, he speaks of Christ who uh, you know, gave himself to redeem us and so on and so forth. But one of the things Paul talks about is this gospel that I received. I know it to be true. It's made an impact in my life and my personal experience. So he's speaking in some ways about himself. Notice, secondly, that there is a distinct uh, atmosphere of righteous indignation, both in the first few verses of the book of Galatians and in the last few. You say, why is that important? Because oftentimes, indignation that has been inflated at the moment will deflate uh, through us, uh, you know, doing the, the, the therapeutic, or as Barney would say, the therapeutic venting, you know, uh, of our emotions. You know how it is. You get angry sometimes and you just got to vent and you just got to talk. And after a few minutes of that, you feel better. But the indignation that Paul felt has not, has not waned even in the least from the beginning of the book of Galatians to the end of the book of Galatians. Notice again the language he used at the end of the book in verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. You almost feel the heat coming off the words that Paul 
is writing. There is a righteous indignation that is here. I want you to notice a third thing that's present in both of these places. And that is speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. He talks about in verse number 1 how that Christ uh, gave himself for you and I. All through the book of Galatians, it always goes back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross. And sure enough, at the end of the book of Galatians, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why are these things significant? They're significant for one thing because they show consistency through the book. But they're consider, they, they are important too because that consistency denotes the, the authentic nature of these truths. They didn't change all through what Paul's writing. He didn't chase a rabbit. He didn't go off in this way or in that way. Paul is still focused on the same thing he's always been focused on in the book of Galatians. It all comes back down to what the cross of Christ has meant in his life and how dare legalists try to impose anything above the cross of Christ and steal Christ's preeminence. So we see some qualities. We see this whole book coming full circle. And so that gives us a little hint as to what Paul is doing. He's bringing them back to that mindset and he's showing them the importance of the cross of Christ. Now let's tackle a few of these verses. Verse number 11, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. Now, there's a lot of reasons Paul said this. I think we can use a little scriptural common sense and decipher why Paul said this and what he's saying. Now first off, let's start it by saying this. Is the book of Galatians a large letter? Now, comparative to the book of Romans, it's certainly not. It's about a third of the size of the book of First Corinthians. In fact, other than books like uh, maybe Philemon or, uh, you know, uh, maybe Second Thessalonians, uh, the book of Galatians is relatively small compared to what Paul has written. You see, when we think of the term of a large letter, we think in content or in volume. It's very likely that Paul was not speaking as far as the length of this, but was rather literally speaking about the physical appearance of the letter that he was writing. He says, with my own hand. My own hand. Now why did he say that? Because it was very uncommon at that time and in that part of the world for a man to sit down and, and write his own letters. Typically, one of the low-wage jobs uh, in that day was to, to be uh, a sort of a secretary. Uh, there's a big fancy word for it, but I can't pronounce it, and you wouldn't know the difference anyway, so I ain't even going to try. But uh, of a person that would sit down and would write a letter that would be dictated to him. And in fact, you see that at the end of many of Paul's letters, you know, written by the hand of Timothy, or so on and so forth. But Paul says, I've written this letter with my own hand. Now, why is it so significant that he wrote this letter with his own hand? Why is it so significant that when he wrote this letter with his own hand, it was a large letter, not in volume, but in appearance? Because it denotes several things. One, I would say that it denotes to us uh, the great urgency with which Paul wrote this letter of the book of Galatians. If it was Paul's custom to typically have someone write a letter for him and he would dictate it to him, and surely we can suppose that the reason that Paul wrote this letter was because he had no one at hand uh, to sit down and have the letter dictated to them. 
This was not just a normal piece of correspondence, you understand. Now, we, we understand nothing in this Bible was a normal piece of correspondence. But there were times when Paul would, would write these letters. I do not know how orchestrated that effort was on Paul's behalf. I don't know if Paul said, well, tomorrow I'm going to write a letter to Timothy. But I do know that this particular letter, the book of Galatians, was something he must have written in great haste. It denotes to us the urgency with which he wrote it. And if it denotes the urgency then surely it denotes the emphasis of what's being written. In other words, when Paul heard of the legalistic activity at the church of Galatians, when he heard of these legalists and these Judaizers coming in and taking advantage of these Galatian believers, Paul could not tarry for one moment. He could not wait. He couldn't sin for anyone. Overcome with passion, with zeal, with righteous indignation, Paul says, I must sit down and write to them immediately. Now listen to me tonight. Can I say that everything is important in this book? Everything. There's not a thing in this Bible that isn't important. The these, the vows, they're important. The so-and-so's begat so-and-so is just as inspired as John 3.16. But can I also say that there are some things in this book that are more important than other things. Now that doesn't mean the things that are less important are not important. But there's no question, there are things that are more important. And even the Word of God, even Christ talked about the Pharisees and said uh, that they tithe and mince and cumin and, uh, you know, that they uh, strain at a, at a mat and swallow a camel. And he said, you forget the weightier matters of the law. So that, it's biblical to say there are things in this book that are more important. What we've dealt with over the past 13 weeks is an important thing. It's not just important, it's more important than some other things. Now, we ought to strive to preach the whole counsel of God and to be biblically balanced in everything. I'm not saying that we neglect things that may seem lesser. We need to strive. And you know what Christ said in that same passage? He said you ought to do the one and not neglect the other. In other words, he didn't say, well, just do the main thing and then whatever else, who cares? That's what this liberal crowd wants to tell us. You know, they want to say, well, uh, you know, the main things are love and grace and mercy. And, uh, and I'm thankful that grace is the main thing. Uh, but I think Christ would say to them, just as he said to the Pharisees, you ought to preach on the one and not neglect the other. There's a place for it. But certainly we ought to understand that what Paul is writing about here is of the utmost importance. It matters that we guard the grace of God in our lives. It matters that we make a conscious effort to ensure that what we do, we do for the glory of Jesus Christ and because of the leading of the Spirit of God. Paul understood the urgency of what was taking place. Can I say to you that it doesn't take long for legalism to corrupt a group of people? Don't take long. We talked about it earlier as we studied this in one of these past weeks, that it does not take long. You get one person in there that, like Diotrephes, loveth to have the preeminence, that sets himself up as a standard, and I mean, buddy, you mark her down. It won't be long before someone says, well, i got to impress that person. And then someone will say, well, if they're impressing them, i got to impress them. And pretty soon somebody will say, well, if everybody else is doing this, I've got to do this. I mean, in a matter of weeks, it can infect a church, and they can be biting and, uh, and devouring one another and destroyed one of another. Paul understood this was urgent. But I would say that not only does it denote how urgent this is, but I, I think it denotes to us what a sacrifice Paul had to make. We were talking earlier as we were sitting there. It's funny how the Holy Ghost leads. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought uh, for anything that we would have mentioned it, but it was just sitting there. 
uh, me and Charlie Linda and, and a couple others was talking kind of across the tables about my 27-year-old eyes and what kind of shape they're in. And uh, I was talking about last night when I was reading. I was reading my text, and I looked away for a moment. When I looked back, it just it looked like alphabet soup. I mean, it looked like, you know, uh, everything was just a jumble. And uh, so I know, I know some of you all are saying, well, just wait, just wait. My fear is I ain't going to have to wait. That's my fear. <coughs> it's believed, and I think correctly so, that Paul probably had an eye disease. A lot of people believe that was his thorn in the flesh. I don't know. I'm thankful God didn't point out what his thorn in the flesh was. You say, why, preacher? Because I'm going to have thorns in the flesh, and you're going to have them too. God, God inspired his word in such a way that it means just as much me and you as it did to Paul. But it's pretty evident. Paul spoke earlier in chapter number 4. He said, what is this blessedness that you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I mean, just, you know, just send someone a valentine if you love them. You know, don't go doing that. The reason Paul said that is because, because of the eye disorder that he had, it was difficult for him to see. Do you remember in Acts chapter 23? I don't know if you remember or not, but in Acts chapter 23, Paul's standing before a council at Jerusalem. And uh, Ananias, the, the high priest, makes some statements about Paul. And uh, Paul made this statement. He said, God smite thee, thou whited wall. And one of the folks standing by said, You're going to talk to the high priest that way? And he said, I wish not, brethren. But it was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not uh, speak evil of uh, the, I can't remember exactly how it's put, of rulers over thee. So evidently Paul, in the same room as Ananias, was not able to identify him in, in a short distance. I think it's evident, I think it's scripturally evident, that Paul had an eye disorder. Now some of you all know what it's like to try to sit down and read without your glasses. All the more to try to write without your glasses. And I'm sure that Paul said to himself, they're going to think I'm nuts when they get this letter and, and they see these big swooping characters and they see the, the poor penmanship and the bad punctuation or what have you, you know, when, when they see the, the, the poor uh, appearance of this letter. But Paul says, I want you to understand that it was a great pain to me in the flesh to write this letter. It, it was difficult for me to write it. But it's worth it if it can make a difference in your life. It shows us how Paul felt about this issue of legalism. He says, I wrote this with my own hand. I wrote it because there was no one else around to write it. It was difficult to write. But in those letters, they could see the love of Paul and the zeal that he had for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd say that some of these incidental verses are quite important to us if we really study them. Now, he's been speaking about his difficulty in the flesh. And then he segues in verse number 12. He says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. Now, Paul's just got through talking about what it cost him in his flesh. And when he talked about it, he didn't talk about it as something that would puff him up or make him exalted in their eyes. But he's been speaking about his weakness in the flesh. Now, isn't that just like the Apostle Paul? He said in, uh, in, in, when he talked about his thorn in the flesh, he said, I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, if I'm going to talk about anything about Paul, I'm going to talk about his weakness. But this other crowd that desire to make a fair show of you in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, Paul has sort of talked about this back in uh, chapter number 5. Uh, he's, he talked about the motive behind which they were trying 
to bring them into bondage. It's important for us to understand that this crowd that wants to tout salvation by works and sanctification by works, it is purely for their own benefit that they do so. It's purely to get more followers. Let me tell you something. I say this as a pastor, okay? As a pastor. If you have an obsession with control, then grace is not for you. If you have to control everything, if you have to be puffed up, if, if you have to have people uh, as notches in your belt, uh, as something that's going to puff you up, then uh, preaching about grace and liberty is not going to do you a lot of good. Because it is a humbling thing as a pastor to have to step away and say, no matter what my opinion is, you need to follow the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I've said before in this study, but I'll say again, there have been times... And people have been, uh, uh, and we'll use this analogy, this example, there's other things. Times that people have been going to make a mistake in their life. Maybe it had to do with, with, with a church change, maybe it had to do with a relationship, maybe it had, whatever it may have been. But I, in my heart of hearts, have felt that they were making a mistake. And yet, the only thing that I could tell them was this. If you'll pray about it and seek the face of the Lord and follow the Word of God, then you'll make the right decision. That's hard as a pastor. But I have two choices when I'm faced with that. I can either try to be the Holy Ghost for them people and tell them what the will of God is for their life, or I can trust the Spirit of God and the Word of God to accomplish what only it can accomplish in their lives. Paul says, if I wanted somebody to be a notch in my belt, then I'd make you a follower of Paul. Paul says, I'm not trying to make you a follower of Paul. I'm trying to make you a follower of Christ. You see, this crowd that's so caught up and hung up with a work salvation or a work sanctification, both of which are straight out of hell, the reason they do that is they're trying to make a bunch of little thems, <laughs> a bunch of followers of them, their preferences, their opinion, because a lot of them are scared to let the Holy Ghost lead people. Let me tell you something, it, 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 when it comes to people, either they're going to follow the Holy Ghost, in which case they'll be right, or they're not going to follow the Holy Ghost, in which case they just hurt us anyway, by being a part of our church and not following the Holy Ghost. Now that's a hard truth, I say that as a pastor, that's a hard truth. It breaks your heart to see people sometimes making those decisions, but you must stand on the integrity of believing of the Holy Ghost as a pastor and as a church member. Just as you are exhorted to follow Christ and not follow a, a man, I as a man must exhort you to follow Christ and not follow me. Now I understand Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, but there's a lot to be said for that as I follow Christ. Paul's not dismissing that we look to earthly examples, and all of us do look to earthly examples, but he's dealing with a group of people that have looked only to earthly examples. So Paul doesn't say that to them. Not because it's not true, but because they're prone to go too far in that direction already. And he says, listen, this crowd that wants you to work so hard and to keep the law and to do this and to do that, they want to do it so you can be another notch in, your, in their belt. Don't be another notch in their belt. You, you be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can be right. He says that that's not the only reason. They desire to make a fair show of you in the flesh, but then there's a fear behind it too. They're afraid. You see, at this time, now we understand that there's always been a certain degree of persecution against Jews and Judaism. 
But Judaism was pretty well accepted in the world at this time. And uh, I'm sure that it would have been a lot easier on this church if they had just been willing to be closet Christians and follow the Jewish law. And Paul says that's the very reason that they want you to do that, so that they don't have to suffer persecution. We were preaching last night on Lazarus. And we were preaching on uh, the testimony of Lazarus in John chapter number 12. It says in John chapter number 12, verse 9, about a group of people that they came not for Jesus' sake only, but also to see Lazarus. And it says in chapter 11 that they hated Jesus and they sought to kill him. And because they sought to kill him, you look over in chapter 12 and they're seeking to kill Lazarus. Not because they hate, what has Lazarus ever done? Uh, not because they hate Lazarus, but because they hate the Savior that raised him from a grave. You see, Lazarus was suffering persecution because of his association with Jesus Christ. Do you know why those Pharisees hated Lazarus so much? Because he was a testimony that their self-righteousness was not enough, that they needed the Savior. And in the same way, these that that promote a work salvation and a work sanctification through the keeping of a standard or a set of rules, that that is the means, or even, listen now, even through abstinence from sin, even through trying to do your best rather than surrendering to the Holy Ghost, part of the reason they do that is because it is an affront and an offense to the flesh to proclaim that we in and of ourselves can't do it. It's offensive to the world, the cross of Christ is. The cross of Christ proclaims this entire world that they are lost, that they are undone, that they are insufficient, that their good works will never be enough. If their good works would be enough, then there would be no need for the cross of Christ. Its very presence is offensive to this world. And Paul says the reason they want you to try to get to heaven through your good works or to try to be what God wants you to be through your good works is they're trying to get you as far away from the cross as possible. They're trying to keep themselves as far away from it as possible because a crossless Christianity is a persecutionless Christianity. He says in verse number 13, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Now, let me just say that all this crowd, there's all, said, all types of, of standards that they use. You'll hear some folks and they'll say, well, you know, I believe if you just do the best you can, you'll get to heaven. Let me ask you something honestly. Do you know anybody who's ever done the best they can? Have you ever done the best you can? I, I mean, be honest. You, you know, these folks, would they honestly tell us that there has never been a time in their life when they've done less than their best? I'll be honest with you. There's been times today I've done less than my best. What about these that would say, well, just keep the Ten Commandments like the rich young ruler. All these have I kept from my youth up. Well, that sounds good and everything. But let's remember what James said, that if any man shall offend in one point of the law, he's guilty of all. Now, you may not be an adulterer or a murderer. You may not be an idolater in the classic sense of the word. You may not have idols in your home that you've constructed for the purpose of falling down and worship unto them. Maybe you do. I don't know. But I'd say there's not a one of us that hasn't told a lie at some point. Not a one of us that hasn't in some way stolen something. See, the truth is, these that, that desire you to be circumcised, now they don't desire you to be physically circumcised today, but what they desire is they desire to say, hey, listen, you've got to live up to this rule and this standard if you want to be somebody. Now, remember, I, I'm not implying that these standards are bad things, nor is Paul. He's not saying you ought to live like a heathen. 
But what he's saying is that try as you may, you can do all these things and you won't exhibit the life of Christ unless you're obedient to the Holy Spirit. That that is the means. If we walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Paul is not on a campaign against circumcision. What he's trying to get us to understand is that circumcision uh, doesn't avail anything. And our good works, apart from the crucified life and apart from the leading of the Holy Ghost will not accomplish anything. And this crowd that says, oh, well, you live this way and you'll be all right, they don't live that way 100% of the time. They don't do their best all the time. They don't do good works all the time. What about these that say, well, you know, I try to do good, I try to give to charity. Have they given everything to charity? No, they got a roof over their head. they are clothes on their back. Paul's saying this crowd that says that they keep all these things perfectly, they don't keep these things perfectly. And you know what I've found? I've found that truly most of that crowd are more carnal than no goat if you really get to know them. Now let me ask you something. Look, I'm just going to throw this out there, okay? Don't get mad at me. But a lot of folks in here, you lived through the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. How many of them televangelists that was found with prostitutes or found stepping out on their wives? How many of them were connected with the charismatic movement? That's the truth now. Now, I'm not saying independent Baptists haven't had their fair, show, uh, their fair share of folks we don't like to talk about. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it is self-evident when you look at this that there is a, a river, a vein of carnality that runs in that movement. You find it not only in their music, but you find it in their relationships, the way they deal with one another. There is a vein of carnality that runs through it. It's not to say there's not carnality amongst good folks. Surely there is. But you get out and you get to know them sometime. You talk to them sometime and you'll find that what they are in the church house is not what they are in their house. You see, they think if they just live up to that standard. But here's the problem. When you think you, you become what you need to be by living up to a standard, you'll eventually get to the place where you'll start making excuses for yourself. And you'll say, well, I know me, so I don't have to live that way in my house. And then you'll start to say, well, I know me, so, and my family knows me, so I don't have to live that way around them. You get to the place where the only time you're ever uh, even resembling a Christian is when you step inside the house of God. Makes a hypocrite out of you. Isn't that right? Just like it did with Barnabas, carried away with their dissimulation, with their hypocrisy. No, they don't keep the law. But they want you to keep the law so that they can glory in, your fl- in their flesh. So they can look at you and say, boy, look at how many people that's, that's living like I am. Well, look how many people just bought my best-selling book. <laughs> look at how many people comes to my meeting. Look at how many people shows up at my church. I'm not against books. I'm not against meetings. And I ain't against church. But who we are in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the fact that we're in Jesus Christ, not that we're anything, but that He's everything. That's where the standing is. What does Paul think about glory? Verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory. Let's pause there. We'll move on and get to the exciting part, but let's pause there. This is a man that could have gloried. I mean, this is a man that could have gloried. Let, let me read to you one, one more time. We're just a few pages away from it. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But let's just read about, about what Paul could have gloried in. In Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse number 4, Though I ought, might also have confidence in the flesh. 
If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the beloved tribe, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. And by the way, when he says an Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, he's speaking racially, genetically. He's speaking of his, of his pure heritage. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul was doing more for the cause of the Pharisees than any other Pharisee was. Paul says, listen, I, I mean, I, I was of the right tribe. I was of the right nation. A lot of these, uh, I'm just going to talk like I talk. Amen. A lot of these jokers out here, they don't know what their bloodline is. Paul says, I know my bloodline. I know I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm in Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says, I'm legit. I'm authentic. I'm bona fide. That's what he's saying. I'm all these things. And then concerning my action, not just my heritage, but my, my actions, it says concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, he said, blameless. There wasn't one of these fellows out here that could have pointed their, their finger at Saul of Tarsus. He says, I could have gloried. I could still glory, Paul says. Understand that though in Paul's mind, all of those things went away. That's what it says in verse number 7. Well, things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He says, all that's gone, that means dead. In his mind, all those things were gone. But in these Judaizers' mind, no. Those things weren't gone in their mind. They very much were aware of who and what Paul had been. And they, in an unusual way, glorified and, and, and uh, fantasized and, and romanticized what Paul had been. Paul says, I could have gloried. I could have talked about who and what I was. I could get up here and I could, I could go down my list. I could go down the begats, trace my way back to that beloved son, that, that son of my right hand and son of my power, Benjamin, that beloved of his father, that youngest that was born. I could trace my lineage back. So says, but what a waste it would be when I could talk about something else. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Can I tell you something tonight? All these folks that are so wrapped up in all these petty little things about themselves, all these folks that are so wrapped up in, in how many years they've done this and done that and taught this and taught that, so wrapped up in the, the titles they've held and the positions that they've filled, and they waste all that much time talking about that. And they could be talking about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All this stuff that is so important to them. You know, I've been, I've been in this church for 800 years, and I've been, and I was here when, you know, when, when the Mayflower pulled in, and I was, you know, and you better respect me because I'm somebody. They're spending all that time talking about that. When they could be talking about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something greater than any office you've ever held? Can I tell you something greater than any achievement that you have ever attained to? Can I tell you something greater than your greatest works of charity and benevolence? Can I tell you something greater? Something greater is that God looked down on you and loved you enough to send Christ to die for your sins. Paul says, I could glory in those things. But what a waste of time it would be when I could glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a waste of time it would be to talk about how great I was when I talk about how great He is. 
What a waste of time it would be to try to talk about my righteousness when Isaiah said that, that my righteousness is a filthy rag. What a waste of time. And yet I can talk about His righteousness because I've been wronged in His righteousness. I mean, I can talk about everything that Paul's done or I can talk about everything that Jesus has done and everything that Jesus has done applies to me because I'm in Him and when God sees me, He, he don't just see the blood, He sees His Son. I, I, I mean, I could talk about all those things or I could tell you that I'm accepted in the Beloved, that I'm God's own Son. I, I could tell you that I belong to Him. Paul says, I could glory in those things, but what a waste of time. Instead, let me glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this next phrase, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now he's talking about the means of sanctification here. The means of sanctification. He's going to say in verse number 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, let me tell you how sanctification is accomplished. It's not accomplished through adopting the standards of men, be they good standards, be they bad standards. And again, let me say that standards have their place. And there are times that, that young Christians can gain a lot of help uh, through, through trying to, to live by standards because they know that, that, that there's a biblical foundation for it, and as their relationship with Christ develops, that standard can help them greatly. I'm not dismissing standards entirely out of hand. But Paul says, can I tell you what, what, that, that, uh, what accomplishes it? He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Your good works, they don't accomplish it. That's not what accomplishes separation. You know, we talk about separation from the world. I believe in separation from the world. But separation from the world is only good in as much as it separates you from the world unto the Lord. There's lots of folks that are separated from the world under themselves. We call them isolationists. You know what they are? Uh, they, they are peculiar, carnal Christians. You know who I'm talking about. I mean, they, they don't, they're, they're nothing like the world, but the problem is they know it. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, buddy, they, you know, they've got, they're, 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 there's a different standard for them, amen, and they're keenly aware of it. They're keenly aware of how great and how wonderful that they are. They've been separated from the world, but the problem is they ain't been separated under the Lord. There's a difference. Amen? There's a difference. What does Paul say? Paul says, I've been separated from the world, but I've been separated to Jesus Christ. Not dismissing separation. On the other hand, he speaks very highly of separation, because when he says, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Can I read you another verse that I believe gives us the sense of that? It's found in chapter 5, verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. What he's saying is, listen, in Jesus Christ, the world's dead to me, and I'm dead to the world. What they love, I don't love anymore. Now, my flesh loves it, but my, my, my flesh has been crucified with the, the affections and the lusts of it if I belong to Jesus Christ. If he's got all of me, then the world has nothing for me. He's saying this is how it's accomplished. Not through simply trying to adhere to a standard. God bless standards. It's wonderful. But that's not how it's accomplished. It's not just accomplished through just working real hard and trying to be. It's accomplished through a crucified life, through surrender to the Holy Ghost, and through acknowledging uh, the transaction and the transition that took place when we got born again and that our old man was nailed to the cross and we've now become a new creature in Christ Jesus. The world's dead to me, Paul says. It may have to my flesh. 
But if I'm, if I'm crucified with Christ, then my flesh shall appeal to me. Now again, Paul's not talking about perfection. We know that. Paul's made that abundantly clear. But what he's saying is that in theory, and inasmuch as we'll submit to the Holy Ghost, not only in theory but in practice, our flesh should not have the reign and the rule of us in our day-to-day lives. And all those things that the world has that appeals to our flesh, we've been crucified. That's dead to me, and I'm dead to it. The world has no interest... Listen, the world had no interest in Paul. The world still has no interest in Paul. You start to live for Jesus Christ, and the world doesn't have no interest in you. I've heard folks lament before. They say, you know, if I got saved, I'd have to get a whole new set of friends. You know, I'd have to get rid of my friends. Let me tell you something, friend. You get born again, they'll get rid of you. You'll be crucified under them. They under you. There'll be a a gap, a chasm in between you that can't be breached except by the cross of Calvary. He says, I'm crucified in the world, and the world's crucified under me. And therein lies the means, the pathway to sanctification. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. Not your good works. Christ didn't come uh, so that you could embellish your good works. Christ came uh, so that you could be crucified from your good works, and His good works could live through you. Not through your striving and your energy. That doesn't impress the Lord. That's the very thing that's sending people to hell tonight, is their own good works. Do you understand that? That's the very thing that's sending people... There's lots of folks that are on their way to hell, and they're not on their way to hell at the end of a beer bottle. They're not on their way to hell at the end of a needle. They're not on their way to hell in the bed of some strange person. They're on their way to hell in church pews. They're on their way to hell uh, dressed right and looking right and seeming right. Because they're depending on all those things instead of depending on the full finished work of Christ on Calvary. Now that don't impress God. Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. But what? A new creature. A new creature. Changed life. A new creature. A, 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 creature, a new creature can't be a new creature except there's new life in him. Paul says that's, that's what affects it. Not the old creature trying to clean himself up. But the old creature crucified, and the new man resurrected in Jesus Christ, and walking afresh and anew in His power and in His Spirit. We live in the Spirit. We ought also to walk in the Spirit. Paul's already said, and if you're saved, you live in the Spirit. You're alive through the Spirit of God. If you've been born again, like it or lump it, friend, you are alive in the Spirit of God. You have been born again uh, of the Word of God. You have been baptized into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. You are indwelt perpetually, eternally, by the Spirit of God. If you're born again, it's only because the Spirit of God has indwelt you and has birthed you into the family of God. If you're saved tonight, you live in the Spirit, so you ought also to walk in the Spirit. It's just natural. That's just the natural progression of things. Paul says that's the means. That's the means. Not circumcision or uncircumcision. Not just, not just taking these standards and running with them. But a daily submission to the Holy Ghost. It says in verse number 16, now this is important, notice this. And as many as walk according to this rule. What rule? Paul didn't give any rules, did he? Yeah, he gave a rule. In verse number 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. That's the rule he's speaking of. That your good works 
are not sufficient to justify you or to sanctify you. But it's not about what you do, but it's about what Christ does through you, through your submission to the Holy Ghost. If you walk according to this rule, there's a couple of things that's going to happen. Notice, first off, peace be on men. Peace be on men. There's no peace like the peace of a believer walking in the Holy Ghost. You never have to second-guess a decision. You never have to, to embrace anxiety over the consequences of your actions. Now, I'm not implying that me, nor Paul, nor anybody has done this perfectly or flawlessly. Paul's not saying that either. But there is a peace that comes from walking with the Lord. There is a peace. And when I say walking with the Lord, I don't, I don't just mean talking about Him. I don't just mean praising Him. I don't just mean having a Bible, owning a Bible, or reading a Bible. But I mean literally day in and day out, uh, talking to the Lord, allowing the Holy Ghost to talk to your heart. And as He talks to your heart, being obedient to what He leads you to do, there is a peace that comes upon the believer. That's the peace that Paul had, wasn't it? Wasn't that the peace that Paul had? Well, see Him there on that stormy sea. See, see him there as he is, is waiting for that storm to dash that ship into pieces. See him as the sailors are running to and fro and casting the tackle off board. And here's Paul, and the Lord visits him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer, Paul. I'm with you, Paul. I'm not leaving you, Paul. You're on this ship because I've ordered it, Paul. And if you're where I want you to be, you're in the right place, Paul. There's a peace on them. But not only peace, notice this. Peace and mercy. Why is there mercy? There's mercy for the mistakes. You know, the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now you've got to kind of be careful with this rule, lest you say something that God's not said. But a lot of times there's sort of a rule of opposites in Scripture. I mean, you can kind of assume a lot of times that if God says a positive statement, that the opposite of it is equally as true. And I kind of tend to believe that if God says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, that those that don't show mercy don't get mercy. I kind of think that if you draw that hard line and say, Walk this, and if you look to others and you show no mercy, that whenever you make mistakes, God will make you suffer the full measure of at least the earthly consequences of it. You remember what the psalmist said? You remember what he said in the 23rd Psalm? He said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know why the, the psalmist could say that? He could talk about what was behind him because of what was in front of him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then what did he say? He leadeth me. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalmist says, the shepherd's in front of me. I'm following him. And as long as I'm following him, I know that goodness and mercy shall be behind me. You see, the sheep didn't have to worry about the future. The shepherd took care of that. And the sheep didn't have to worry about the past because goodness and mercy were following. You say, why did the psalmist say goodness and mercy? Because he could look back at his life, at the good things that had happened, and he could say, boy, that's been the goodness of God. Boy, that's been the goodness of God. I, I, I look back and see a blessed life behind me. And I'd say with the psalmist tonight that I can look back and I see a blessed life behind me. I see the touch and hand of God on my life. Times when I didn't deserve it. Times when I didn't know it. Times when I didn't pray for it. And times when I did not see it coming. I can see the goodness of God. What about times when things go bad? 
You know things go bad in Christian life sometimes. We see the mercy of God. Times when we made mistakes and everything should have fallen apart, but there was mercy. Times when we did the wrong thing, did it willfully, but there was mercy. Why was there mercy there? Because we was following the shepherd. Oh, he may have gone this way, and we may not have been paying attention. We might have gone this way. He might have gone this way, and we saw something that looked good to us, and lured us away, and we went this way. But the shepherd knew that we're just fallible, uh, weak sheep, and we're trying to follow him. The Lord understands that. And so mercy is there. Mercy is there. But for these that don't show mercy, I believe that the Lord will call us to task for the full measure of the consequences of what we have done. Oh, I'll tell you, friend, there's a lot of times when I got myself in a mess and the Lord got me out. And let me tell you something. If He hadn't got me out, He wouldn't have been breaking any promises to me. He wouldn't have been breaking any promises to me. What does the Bible say? What sort of man sow if that shall he also reap? Times when, I, when I've done wrong and I've sinned and if God had made me pay the full measure of it, He would have still been right. He wouldn't have broke any promises to me. He wouldn't have had to have apologized to me. I don't mean as a lost man, mind you. I mean as a, as a saved child of God. The Bible says that every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasing it. And times when I deserved that, oh, but mercy showed up. Mercy showed up. And when God could have dealt with me that way, He didn't deal with me that way. But we better be careful lest we live a life devoid and absent of mercy for one another. Because God will call us to task. We better learn to show mercy towards each other. We better learn to not take people to task so quickly. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. But we better learn to deal in grace and mercy. And for those that are willing to cast off their good works and to do their best to follow the Spirit of God, pulses mercy on you. God will show mercy on you. Not only on you, He says, and upon the Israel of God. Upon the Israel of God. He's speaking of those that have been born again. Now, I think it's important that Paul said, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. He is saying in an emphatic way, for those that will walk in this way, peace and mercy will be present for them. But then he says, and upon the Israel of God. He's denoting two things. One is their status as being part of the Israel of God and that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are the children of faith and the children of Abraham in a spiritual sense. But I think also what Paul is denoting here is that even for every believer, there's times when God doesn't have to deal with us that way, but he does. Verse number 17. He says, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul is taking a liberty here that I believe he's well doing. God believed he was well doing, or else God wouldn't have given him liberty to say this. There had been a lot of trouble put upon Paul throughout this process. You know, there had been lots of folks that had, uh, that had come in, these Judaizers had come in and said, You know, that Paul, you better be crazy, you know, you better be careful about him, he's a fanatic. That Paul, you know, his apostleship, I mean, who's he? He wasn't Peter, he wasn't James, he wasn't John. He didn't come from Jerusalem, mind you. This, this Paul fellow, you better be careful about him. And almost as though Paul throws up his hands and says, Listen, he says, I fully vindicated my apostleship to you. I've made it abundantly clear that the gospel I received, I received not of men but of God. Uh, the, the Lord has vindicated my apostleship amongst you and in your presence with the effectual working of His Word through me and in you. He says, From henceforth let no man trouble me. 
He says, this ought to settle it. Don't let these Judaizers come in and cast doubt upon your father in the faith. Let this settle it. And he says, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It's been said before that when we get to heaven, God, rather than looking us over for medals, will probably look us over for scars. And there's a lot of accolades that man seeks to laud upon those that claim the name of Christ. Can I say that it's a, it's a sweeter sight to the Lord Jesus when He sees us that we have faithfully suffered for Him rather than we have attained the accolades of men. Paul certainly had those marks in his body. We don't know the half of what Paul suffered. I'm serious. We don't know the half. Paul said things like how he tangled with the wild beasts at Ephesus. And commentators have done everything they could try to explain that away. I mean, they've done everything they could try to say, well, you know, those were just, uh, you know, uh, you know, heretics, or those were just, you know, that was the sorcerers, or, or that was just... Let me tell you what I believe. Now, you take this for whatever you want to take it for. But I believe when Paul said the wild beasts, I believe he meant the wild beasts. And that's just something that's reserved for heaven. I don't know if we'll care about it or not. I guess we will, because it's part of the Word of God. And we're going to find out one of these days, but I thoroughly believe there's times when Paul stood in an arena and faced wild beasts. I don't know how it turned out, but I know he's still around. Amen? Times when he's left for dead outside of Lystra, having been stoned to death. Times when he was beaten. You turn over sometime, I think it's 2 Corinthians, when he goes down the laundry list of things that he had suffered. Buddy, it'll put you to shame. I mean, we get all tore up, somebody looks at us cross-eyed. Paul says, uh, you know, I was shipwrecked. I was a day and the night in the deep. Thrice was I beaten. Uh, Forty stripes save one. He says, I, listen, I've been beat half to death for Jesus' name. He says, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the what? What fitting? The grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let me say one final word. And we'll close. I've been so good to stay on time. Don't 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 get ugly with me now. He says, with your spirit. Can I say that that much of the of the ugliness of the episode at Galatians had to do with the spirit in which they were dealing with things? I don't believe that Paul is necessarily speaking about the spirit of God here. For a lot of reasons. Well, for one thing, that, that spirit is not capitalized. Now, whether that means anything to you or not, it kind of means something to me. But then, too, the grace of God is always with the Spirit of God. I don't believe necessarily that he's even talking about the spiritual man. The, the Bible talks about how that the spiritual man receiveth the things of the Spirit of God. The, the grace of God is always with the spiritual man. You know what I think Paul is saying? Now, you disagree. Probably he's talking about the attitude. The attitude. You ever said about someone, boy, they just got a bad spirit about them? You didn't mean they was devil-possessed. You didn't mean that the new man that was within them had been corrupted. What you meant was they had a bad attitude. They had a bad attitude about the way that they dealt. And I think Paul's closing statement here is the most fitting. He says, when you deal with God, when you deal with one another, do it in the spirit of grace. Do it in the spirit of grace. Oh, that we might learn to deal with the Lord and with one another in a spirit of grace.